So I don't know if you heard this or not, but uh, I guess overnight there was a huge explosion on the south side of Indianapolis in a clothing factory. Did you, did you see that? I, I guess when the fire was over and they, they did some investigating, they found that there were a uh, hundred casualties involved in this uh, clothing fire. Yeah, most of the structural damage, though, was just done to the rugs, so the cops are calling it carpet bombing. Okay, and <laughs> the only guy uh, that was on scene was the, uh, the assistant manager. His name was Napoleon. Napoleon was blown apart. May he rest in pieces. I'm sorry to start like that this morning, okay, but I, I want to talk to you about something that's very explosive, and I need you to get your attention because it's nasty outside. And I want to talk about some explosion that could go on inside. And what I'm talking about is when you take the powerful Word of God and mix it with this prayer that we've been doing for 40 days together, I'm talking about boom, baby. I'm talking about bombs away in your life. I'm talking about all kinds of changes when you actually pray the Word of God. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20, we have the Word of the prophets made more certain, and you do well to pay attention to it. Above all else, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of men. But men spoke God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Every writer in the Bible insists that what they wrote was inspired and motivated and moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed, all of it. And it is, man. I mean, you think about it. The Bible is an amazing book. It's an amazing in its popularity. First book ever published in 1450. It's been read by more people, published in more language, scrutinized by more people than any other book in history. And the Bible sells out more than the next five bestsellers every year. It's amazing. I mean, you can't ignore that. Something's going on. The Bible's amazing in its unity. We just talked about this a little bit Wednesday night. Here you have 66 books written by 40 different authors over a span of 1,600 years, written in three different continents and three different languages by a variety of different men on all kinds of different subjects, and yet when you sit down to read it, it's like you're reading one harmonious read from one person, because one person wrote it, that's why. The Bible's amazing in its accuracy, too. The Bible never claims to be a book about science or astronomy, but anytime it touches on those things, it's extremely accurate. Jeremiah 31, 37 says, unless the heavens can be measured, no way will God reject Israel. Unless all the heavens can be measured. In the 17th century, astronomer Ptolemy said that he had used a telescope and had actually counted all the stars in the heaven, and because of that, he had disproved the Bible. He counted 1,056 stars. Of course, today with our powerful telescopes, we know that we have over 100 billion stars in just our galaxy, and nobody has any idea how many galaxies there are, and yet Jeremiah wrote 1,500 years ago, unless the heavens could be measured. The Bible's amazing in its indestructibility, too. Down through the ages, all kinds of people, all kinds of programs, all kinds of, uh, of groups have tried to discredit the Bible. They always fail. They always land flat on their face with egg on their face. Thomas Paine wrote a book called The Age of Region, and he said, by the time this book is finished, there won't be five Bibles left on the shelf. Well, Thomas Paine has come and gone. His book's off the shelf, and the Bible's still number one seller. Gokarl, the famous uh, French infidel, he wrote a book about a hundred and some years ago, and he said within a hundred years ago, you won't hear anything else about the Bible. 
50 years after he wrote that book, a copy of his book sold for eight cents, and a manuscript of the Bible was sold from Britain to the Russia for $250,000. 50 years after he wrote that, his house was turned into a printing factory, and guess what they printed? Yeah, God has such a sense of humor. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. My word will never pass away, Matthew 24. But you know, the most amazing thing to me about the Bible is it's fulfilled prophecy, 100% accurate. We can't even get the weather right. I bet some weather channel said it was going to be partly sunny this morning because that's our weather report. But the Bible is 100% accuracy in their predictions. I mean, that's mind-boggling. You read through the Old Testament, just the predictions about Jesus. He'll be born of a virgin. He'll be born in the city of David. He'll be executed between two thieves. He'll be sold out by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. He'll be laid in a borrowed tomb. They'll cast lots for his clothing. It's amazing. Psalm 22. Have you read Psalm 22? It it talks about the execution of Jesus and, and intimates deeply that it will be crucifixion. You say, what's the big deal about that? Crucifixion hadn't been invented yet. Listen to Psalm 22. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. A band of evil men have circled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, cast lots for my clothing. How do you explain that? When crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet, I'll tell you how to explain it, because it was written by the mind of God. One mathematician calculated that just half of the predictions made of Jesus coming true in one person is 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's 1 in 10 with 157 zeros behind it. It actually takes more faith not to believe in the truth of the Bible today. Now, one skeptic might say, well, you know, that was written in the Old Testament. Maybe when Jesus came along, they wrote the New Testament, somebody filled that in. I guess that was a fair argument. It's kind of goofy, but it was fair until about 1940. Remember what happened then, right? Little shepherd boy in Qumran playing around the cave, dropped a rock, and it shattered. They did some investigation. They found the oldest documents known to man, the Dead Sea Scrolls, dating way back before Jesus. And some of them were scriptures, and they unrolled those documents, and they read, he was, he'll be born of a virgin. He'll be executed between two thieves. They have pierced my hands and my feet. It's popularity, it's unity, it's indestructibility. The amazing prophecies of Scripture make absolutely clear that we have the undeniable, infallible Word of God in our hands. Now listen, I told you a couple of weeks ago, I don't know about all those translations that are going on. It seems like we come up with two or three translations every year. But if you stick with the NIV and the NASV and the ASV and the King James, if you like that, or the New King James, I'm telling you, beyond a doubt, you are holding on to the unbelievable, infallible Word of God Himself. Now, somebody might say, I thought we were talking about prayer. I am talking about prayer. I'm talking about praying the Word of God in your prayer time, and if you do that, oh, my mama cakes, things will start to happen. It's crazy. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down and began to teach them. He taught the disciples. Can you imagine sitting down in prayer with Jesus and letting him teach you? They taught, he, they taught as one with authority, they said. He taught unbelievably, they said. He taught amazingly, they said. Can I remind you, the family? He still does. He still is. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You sit down with the Word of God. You open that up, and you start praying with Jesus, and you're not studying the Word. (laughs) The Word's studying you. 
it opens things up. You begin to see your flaws and your Pharisaic behavior. It's living and active, sharpened a double-edged sword, cuts all the way the bone. It encourages, it rebukes, it corrects, it judges the thoughts and motives of the heart. And when you sit down and pray through it with Jesus, man, all kinds of things begin to happen in your life. These people recognized Jesus as teacher, and he sat with them and prayed. And boy, could he teach. He was amazing. Um, what I'm going to suggest we do for the next year, uh, week and a half, that's all we have left in this 40 days of prayer, by the way. Isn't that amazing? It's gone so good. I hope you've just been enlightened with that, and I hope you're going to tell me some stories of great things that have happened. But in the year and a half, that, or the week and a half that we have left, I would like for us to pray through the Sermon on the Mount together. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's just three chapters. You can do that. People ask me all the time, hey, I want to start reading the Bible. Where should I start? I always say, start in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the teachings of Jesus. You start praying through that, man, it's amazing stuff. You're going to find out right off the bat that he's talking about freedom. Everybody loves that. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus was preaching in his hometown. In verse 18, he quotes Isaiah 61, 3, which was all about the year of Jubilee, total freedom. This is what he said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to preach the good news. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom from the captives, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then after he read it, the Bible says he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. He sat down. Now, we know that that's how they used to do that back then, right? When they sat down, the game was on. That's how they taught and preached back then. They would, they would, the, the, the teacher would sit and everybody else would stand. We still talk that way today. We talk about the professor's chair, or we talk about the pope speaking to ex cathedra, which means from his seat. And I thought it would be fun to do that this morning. So I'm going to get a chair, and I'm going to spend the rest of my time sitting down. I want you all to stand up for the next... What? Don't you think that would be fun? I mean, we could find out once and for all if Dave Matney can sleep standing up. Because he can sleep sitting down. I see it every week. You know, and I'm just kidding around with you. So... Uh, we're going to talk, uh, we're going to spend some time with Jesus and, and let him walk through this unbelievable teaching as we read this text. The Bible says that, that all the eyes were fastened on him, and he began to teach. And this is what he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm here today, I have brought total freedom with me, does anybody want it? I bet every hand was raised that day. If I'd have been there, my hand had gone up. Would yours? I love freedom. Anybody in here like freedom? I love to read texts and scriptures about freedom. How about praying on this last uh, this week? How about this section of scripture where the Bible says the truth will set you free? How about finding praying over this this week? Listen, I'm not talking about CNN or Fox News. I'm not talking about MSNBC or anything you can read on the internet. I'm talking about the truth of God's Word. You pray over that this week and see what happens. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 32 says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. The Bible says, where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. And when you spend some time praying over this week, you're going to find out that Jesus is all about giving you freedom. You say, okay, okay, we get it. Uh, what kind of freedom? I had a buddy that was driving back with his uh, brother and his eight-year-old nephew from the boat sport travel show last year, and he said they were driving home, and they were talking, having a good time, and they pulled up next to this flatbed truck that had a fork left on it, 
And uh, the little eight-year-old boy looked out the window and he said, now that's something I'd like to have. And his dad said, Jonathan, what in the world would you do with a forklift? And without missing a beat, he said, anything I want to, Dad. <laughs> that's not the kind of freedom I'm talking about, okay? Uh, the freedom Jesus offers us today is not the kind that frees us up to do anything we want to do. That's what's going on in this society and our culture today. You can do anything you want to do. You can be anybody you want to be. You can promote anything you want to promote. You can say anything you want to say. Listen, that's not the freedom Jesus offers us. The freedom that Jesus offers us as we pray through this with Him is a lot deeper than that. It's not prayer to anything. It's prayer from things. This week, as you look into, into Matthew chapter 6, uh, think about Romans chapter 6, verse 18, where we can be free from the power of sin. Pray over that this week and see if that makes a difference in your life. We can be free from concern, 1 Corinthians seven thirty-two. We can be free from all the blemish and accusation in sight of God. All the blemish and accusations in sight. We can be free from that. Colossians 1.22, that's a wowzers thing right there. We can be free from burdens, Matthew 11. Free from worry, Matthew 6. Free from the love and destruction of money, Hebrews 13.5. And how about this one? Free from the fear of death, Hebrews 2.15. That's just the tip of the iceberg that the freedom that Jesus offers us, if you sit down and look in the Word and pray over that, you'll be amazed by what He offers. And of course, right up front, Jesus is offering us freedom from legalism and freedom from fake religion that we talked about last week. These people were sick and tired of all the stuff that had been piled up on top of what was supposed to be a very simple, loving relationship with the God of the universe. They were sick of it. I read about something that happened recently at the L.A. International Airport. I thought it was interesting. This guy was walking through the airport. He had two huge suitcases, and a guy came up to him. He said, excuse me, can you tell me what time it is? And he put him down, and he looked at his watch. He said, it's 5.15. The guy said, thank you. He said, no, wait a minute. The barometric pressure is 29.14. It's 86 degrees. We got a full moon tonight. London is 32 degrees Celsius right now. They're expecting partly cloudy skies. And in Japan, it's 68 degrees light rain. The guy said, you can tell all that by looking at your watch. He said, I can tell that and a whole lot more. The guy said, man, I got to have that watch. I'll give you $1,000 cash. He said, I'm not selling my watch. I got two. I'll give you 2000 He said, nope. He said, man, all I have on me is $5,000. I'll give you $5,000 cash for that watch. And the guy said, oh, I'll do that. He took it off and handed it to him. The guy was so happy, put it on, started to walk away. The guy said, wait a minute, don't forget your batteries. That's what the Pharisees were doing to these people in Jesus' day. They, they were inviting them to come and know Jehovah God as their personal God. And then when they got him in there, they were loading them up with all this extra baggage of rules and regulations and traditions and stuff. They took a very simple, wonderful relationship with God, and they ruined it. Aren't you glad we don't do that today at Christianity? Aren't you glad that we don't add things to and take things from and make a mess of the simple gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus showed up 2,000 years ago, and he, he said, I have come to set the captives free, and he's in this building right this minute making the same offer. Do you want it or not? John chapter 8, verse 32, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. You pray on that this week, see if that doesn't make things different for you. At some point, i got to get us down here. So let me just talk to you a little bit about what this is going to look like as you pray through this with Jesus in the next week and a half. Uh, chapter 5 of Matthew is, is going to be all about authenticity. Uh, 
real is in and fake is out. Jesus doesn't like fake. And, and that I'll tell you right up front why everybody, uh, they either loved to hear him speak or they hated it. Because part of the crowd were so sick and tired of the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and the other part of the crowd was the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So they either loved Jesus or they hated Jesus. But everybody wanted to hear about freedom when he started talking about it, at least up front. Because again, freedom is amazing stuff unless you fake it. And then not so much. Not so much. Jesus despised a fake especially when it comes to righteousness, uh, because there's so much arrogance involved in that. And arrogance is so annoying. You know what I mean? You guys look tired. This rain's making you tired. Let me ask you a question. Do you know what you get when you get an arrogant criminal walking down a flight of stairs? I'm looking right at you. You get a condescending con descending. Okay, so Jesus despises fake because it's arrogant, but he also despises us because the Christian walks tough enough without trying to fake it. Amen? Hypocrisy's hard on us. It just is. And we talked a little bit about this last week. When you want to, uh, uh, you know, show yourself righteous but not act righteous, when you want to talk righteous but not live righteous, Man, that is tiring, and it puts you right on the fence, right in the middle. And I got to tell you, young people especially, young adult people, old adult people, everybody in here, the middle is a lonely place to be. It just is. Because, see, when you're in the middle, nobody trusts you. Your Christian friends won't trust you because they, they see you coming in here on Sunday morning, leading worship and putting your hands up and praising God, and then they watch how you act out there. Out there where it really counts, where we're supposed to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And your non-Christian friends, they don't trust you either because they see you act like a child of the devil with them on Saturday night, but they know you're going to come in here on Sunday morning and try to act like a child of the king. And what they're actually thinking is, make up your mind. Jesus is saying the same thing. Make up your mind. In fact, he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, I say to you, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of God. Are you saying, Jesus, we got to be perfect or else? Nope. No, what he's saying is, we better be real or else. Big difference. Jesus is offering you and I to live a simple faith wrapped in the grace of God based on the truth of God's word, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. And you talk about a breath of fresh air that will change your life. You spend this week sitting down and talking to him about the freedom that belongs to you and what happens when you're real and not fake. It's amazing. Then chapter 6 in Matthew, he's going to talk to you uh, about performance, and you can pray to him about that. And, and again, sometimes we speak righteously, but we don't act that way. Sometimes we act righteously, but we do it with the wrong motive. We do it to show off. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. And then he gives some examples. We've talked about them. We'll just, you know, he says, uh, don't give that way. Don't blow your trumpets. Remember what the Pharisees used to do? They'd take their $10 and go down the IU Credit Union and turn it into pennies, and then they'd walk down the middle of the church and dump it in the metal basket, and everybody says, oh, what great givers they are. Jesus said, don't do that. You, you give in secret. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. He's not saying, again, that you should never tell somebody you did something nice. He's saying you practice that way, and then you won't be lured into showing off. Same thing with prayer. 
Don't, don't try to be heard by your great words. You know, you're in a group of people and you're taking turns praying and one guy prays this way and, and you're thinking, oh man, he really knows how to pray. But instead of being involved in that prayer, you're trying to think what you're going to say next. Jesus said, don't play that game. Go in a closet someplace and speak to the Lord privately and he'll hear what you got to say. And then fasting, which we're going to get to. You know, don't go to Cloverleaf on Saturday morning with your friends and say, you guys go ahead and eat. I'm fasting. You know, I'm doing a great thing. He says, be real. He'll talk to you about performance. And, and then as you pray through chapter 7, he's going to uh, talk to you about judge, being judgmental. I think most of us in here need to spend a lot of time in chapter 7 in prayer. I, I just do. One of the funniest things to me right now about this whole movement of tolerance in our culture is the people that are screaming and hollering tolerance the most are the most intolerant people you ever want to meet. If you don't agree with them, whew. And what that's done to me, and maybe to you if, if I'm not careful, is it's caused me to be intolerant. Charles Swindoll says we have become spec specialists, and that's me. If I'm not careful, I can spot a speck in your eye a mile away, and the whole time I got a two-by-four hanging out my that needs surgically removed. And Jesus is going to get with you in prayer over chapter 7 and say, stop that. Stop judging people. You're picking up the phone and judging what they're saying. You're picking up your phone and judging how they act. You're picking up your phone and judging how they dressed and where they went on vacation. What are you doing, Jesus says? I don't want you to do that. That would be a good prayer time for most of us. And then... Fourthly, and I'll get us down here, he's going to talk to us about commitment. The very last uh, part of chapter 7, as you begin to pray, you'll remember the parable of the, the two homes, two houses. One guy built his house on the sand, remember that? And the other guy built his house on the rock. And then the rains came and the winds blew and the floods came just like the day. And the guy who built his house on the sand lost everything. The guy that built his house on a rock, everything was good. See, this is not a story about wind and rain and storms because they're coming. Everybody in here, they're right around the corner and everybody knows it. Some of you are already in it. It's not a story about the storm. It's a story about what kind of house you have built when the storm comes. Pray about that. Just pray through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. See if it doesn't make a change in your life. Powerful stuff. Now, one of the things we uh, decided is that we're going to be more intentional about our invitation time on Sunday morning. We, we always key in on the communion table, and rightly so. This is the central part of worship at South Union Christian Church. This is why I'm here, to belly up to the table as the honored guest of Jesus, where I can celebrate the broken body and shed blood of him. But we're going to be a little more intentional here uh, the way it used to be when I started preaching about talking to anybody that's in the building right now that is not part of the family, that can't participate at the table in the right way because you don't belong to Jesus Christ. We're going to talk to you every week because I think you're running out of time. And today's the day of salvation right now. I, I want you to quit going home thinking about, I'll do this next week. You might not have next week. Might not have tomorrow. I always think about Cam Huxford. He, he tells a story about a preaching friend of his who was speaking to a pretty large group of people in a second service. And he'd been after this guy, a pretty prominent businessman in town, pretty powerful, very wealthy, influential. He'd been after him trying to get him to come to church for months. And he said he's, he got up to start to preach, and this guy walked in late. And he was thinking, I know what they're going to do, and they did it. The ushers paraded the guy right down the middle of the church, right up front, sat him in the front row. 
He's thinking, great. And they set him right next to a special needs kid. And the kid talked to him the whole service. And then during the, uh, the, the invitation hymn, he watched down here, and this special needs kid was talking to him. He'd shake his head, talking to him. He'd shake his head. Finally said something to him, and the guy just got up and left, walked out the door. And the preacher's saying, great, super. I worked on this guy for months. I finally get him here, and this kid just ruined the whole thing. He stewed on all, all week, and next Sunday he started preaching, and to his surprise, his friend came back in. He came in and sat about halfway up, and during invitation time, the guy came up, gave his life to Jesus. And he said, I went to back, they baptized him, it was amazing. And as they were getting dressed and dried off after the baptism, he looked over the guy and said, I've been praying for you for so long. I've been, what, what, I just got to ask you, because we're close. I mean, what, what did you hear me say to you, either in the sermon or in our conversations, that brought you to this point? And the guy said, well, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but didn't have anything you had to say. He said, last week I was sitting in the front row with that kid, and he wouldn't leave me alone. And during the invitation to him, he said, Hey, mister, are you a Christian? I said, no. He said, hey, mister. I said, what? He said, are you going to become a Christian today? I said, no. He said, hey, mister. And he said, what? He said, don't you want to uh, uh, let Jesus become the Lord and master of your life and live forever? And the guy said, no. And the kid said, well, then go to hell then. He said, I've not been able to get past that all week. I've been thinking about it all week. I'm asking you, if you're in a building today and Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, would this be a real good day? Wouldn't you like to come forward today and accept Him as your personal Lord and Savior? No? Well, come talk to me, would you?